2 Timothy chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who, was destroyed, who has destroyed death and has brought life, immortality and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Let's pray. I know we've already prayed, but it's always good to pray again. Dear Lord, we pray that as we come and have a look uh, at this deeply personal letter between Paul and his disciple Timothy, that you would help us to learn too from this correspondence. I pray that you'd help us to see the things that we need to do in our walk with you. I pray that you'd be with me, help me to faithfully share and expand your word, and I pray that you'd help all of us to learn and apply what we hear today. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're starting a five-week series on the book of 2 Timothy, and this series is going to be probably a bit different to most Bible series you have heard. So I've just got to warn you up front... Uh, some of it is going to be a bit technical and academic. Who says yes? Who says oh? <laughs> and there's a reason for this. And the reason is, is, I'm sorry, this is not the first time I've given this series. So the first time I gave this series was in February to a whole bunch of Bible translators who know Greek and all that sort of stuff. So it was designed for them. Who's scared now? <laughs> I can sit down? No worries, you'll keep. So it was originally given to a whole lot of Greek freaks and, Greek freaks and people into linguistics whose job is to translate the Bible into other languages. But before you get too worried, 
I have taken a lot of the technical stuff out and I have taken most of the Greek stuff out as well. However, I also realise that some of you might actually be interest, in, in, interested in some of that stuff and so I've kept some of it in there. Some of you will find it interesting and helpful uh, and some of you won't. If you don't find it helpful, don't worry, just go to sleep until the interesting bits come. No, don't go to sleep, but, but, <laughs> but there should still be enough of down-to-earth stuff in the message too that you can apply to your life. Uh, another warning too is that when I, the original series was actually six sermons, and this is only five, so I've had to squish the first and second sermons into one sermon for this first one. So this first one's going to be a little bit longer than the others, okay? Can you put up with it just this time? The next ones will be shorter, I promise. Hope to promise. So one example of this technical stuff is that as we go through 2 Timothy in the next few weeks, one of the things that we'll be looking at in this book is something called socio-rhetorical exposition. Oh dear, have I lost you already? <laughs> so you might be asking, what on earth is that? When I say socio, what do I mean by socio? Now socio, and here, hang on to your seats, refers to using anthropological and sociological studies to look at the cultural background of Paul and Timothy in this letter and to see how important it is for understanding this letter. What that means is we're going to look at how the culture worked back then to see what was going on in this letter. And that helps us to understand what Paul is saying to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, the strongest feature of this socio-criticism or exposition is the theme of honour and shame that is so strong in the book of 2 Timothy. In fact, honour and shame is such a strong theme in this book that you could almost say that it, it is the basis for Paul's argument to Timothy throughout the whole book. Now, the whole idea of honour and shame varies greatly across different cultures of the world today. Most of us are probably from a Western Australian culture, but not all of us are. Some of us are from Asian cultures, which are more uh, where honour and shame is stronger. Now, in many Western cultures particularly in the continental Europe, like where my wife's from, uh, and in the US as well, honour and shame is not very strong. And often, because it's not strong, Westerners completely miss Paul's appealing to Timothy through honour and shame, because honour and shame was strong in the Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures back in the first century. Now, those of you who are from Eastern cultures or who have lived in Eastern cultures, such as in much of Asia, in fact, most of the world apart from Europe and the US, where honour and shame is much stronger, just like the culture of Paul and Timothy's day, it may be easier for you to see what's going on in this letter. But for those of us who it's not natural for, we're going to have to really try and see it better. Now, where do we fit in Australia? Where does Aussie culture fit? We are a mostly Western culture, but for reasons that I don't really know the answer to, maybe because we're a multicultural nation, maybe because we're close to Asia, we do have some sense of that honour and shame. I mean, one expression is when, you know, someone or your, your family member says something in public and you say to them, don't hang out your dirty washing in public. That's an idea of honour and shame in our culture. 
So we're somewhere between Eastern and Western cultures, but we're probably more at the Western end. And so we can sometimes struggle to appreciate how much of honour and shame there is in the Bible. But when we understand it and see it there, it really helps us to understand the dynamics of what's going on in a book like 2 Timothy and also in other parts of the Bible as well. This is how it works in 2 Timothy. You see, the basic premise of this letter is that Paul's disciple or Paul's apprentice, Timothy, seems to be ashamed of Paul. Why is he ashamed of Paul? He is ashamed of Paul because Paul is in prison. And prison, jail, was a very shameful place to be. Many people had rejected Paul, including his former colleagues. To be in prison was a very shameful thing to do. In the eyes of the world and other people, Paul has been greatly shamed. He's been shamed by being abandoned by his colleagues. He's been shamed by suffering persecution. And he's been shamed by being thrown into prison. And that is why, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul has to tell Timothy this. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And this verse also shows us a deeper problem. Because not only does Timothy seem to be in danger of being ashamed of Paul, he seems to be in danger of being ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That is, of sharing the gospel. As the NLT, New Living Translation, says in verse 8, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. Throughout this letter, Paul turns honour and shame upside down. Paul says that, yes, in the eyes of the world, it is shameful to follow Jesus. Shameful things will happen to you. Other people will ridicule and put you down. However, when that happens, you will be honoured by God. And so Paul encourages, Paul exhorts Timothy to be willing to be put down, to be willing to be dishonoured, to be willing to be shamed in people's eyes so that he can receive honour from God. And as we go through the book, we will see this many times. And that is a tremendous encouragement to us, especially if we face mocking, ridicule and shame from some people because we follow Jesus. The next thing that you might not have heard of before that we're going to look at in this book is something called rhetoric. Has anyone heard the term rhetoric? What does it mean? It's not like rhetorical questions. It's a different way of using rhetoric. What does rhetoric mean? Argument, yeah. Sorry? Persuasion, yes, it means persuasion. So put simply, rhetoric is the art of persuasion. It normally applies to public speaking, but it can also be done in a letter like here. It's also what I'm doing now. I'm using rhetorical principles when I'm talking to you. Now, rhetoric was a really big deal in the ancient Greco-Roman world, more than it is for us today. For the privileged people who went to school, rhetoric was a core part of their education. 
It was a much more central part of the education system than it is for us today. I mean, today you go off and do public speaking maybe for those people who are interested in it. But back then, if you went to school, it was like maths or English. Learning how to write and deliver persuasive speeches was a central part of their education system. And so someone like Paul, who was highly educated in the Greco-Roman education system, would have been well-trained in the art of rhetoric. That is the art of speaking or of writing persuasively. And we see this quite a lot in his letters. In ancient rhetoric, there are what we call three modes of proof. And they are, and sorry, I've, you know, I know some of you know Greek letters, so I put the Greek letters up there for those who do, but for those who don't, just look at the English ones. They are athos, pathos, and logos. And we'll be having a look at each of them over the next few weeks. Now, ethos refers to the character of the speaker or writer or what we might today called, be called credibility. Someone's credibility. For example, if someone with a PhD in chemistry gets up here and gives a lecture in chemistry, he or she will have a lot more credibility or ethos than if I give a lecture in chemistry. That would be a bit of a joke if I did it, wouldn't it? As we go through to Timothy, we will see how Paul draws on his ethos, his credibility, as an apostle of Jesus the Messiah and as Timothy's teacher or master. The next one on the list there is pathos. Now, pathos is emotional appeal. And this is very, very strong in 2 Timothy, particularly at the beginning, which we're looking at today, and the end, which we'll look at to, at the end. As we go through this letter, we will see how Paul draws on Timothy's emotions. And Paul urges Timothy to continue following him and Jesus, and more importantly, to continue following God and his Messiah, Jesus. The third proof is logos, which is the one we're probably more familiar with. Logos is the logical argument, and that can consist of many components, such as quoting scripture, quoting well-known sayings, using metaphors, using logical deductions and arguments, all of which we find in 2 Timothy. So, that's a little bit about rhetoric to get us going. But why 2 Timothy? Why are we looking at 2 Timothy? Is it because it fits into five weeks quite nicely? Well, it does. But why choose this little book that's right there at the back of your Bible? Some of you, I hope you are turning it today already. If you've already got 2 Timothy, if you've got your Bible open, please turn to 2 Timothy. If you've got it on your phone, look it up on your phone. But if you've got a book, it's hard to find, isn't it? Only a few pages right towards the end. Now, I chose 2 Timothy because I love this little book. And why do I love it? Because it seems to have been written just before Paul died. Paul was in chains. He was in prison. His court case was not going well. Many of his colleagues and even his disciples had deserted and abandoned him. Now we look back at Paul and when you think of Paul, do you think of someone as, being, as someone who was successful? Who reckons Paul was pretty successful, that God used greatly? I mean, look, he wrote a significant portion of the New Testament. About half of Acts was about him. 
He planted all these churches. He's famous. He's successful. But at the end of his life, Paul couldn't see that. That's not how Paul saw himself here. All Paul could see was his prison chains that he was wearing. He saw people leaving him, abandoning him. He stood alone at his trial, as we'll see in the last chapter. He suffered much disgrace, much shame. Even Timothy, who was so close to him, seems as though he may have been wavering in his commitment. But despite all these bad things going on, Paul can see the prize, the eternal prize. Right at the back of the book in chapter 4, verse 8, Paul can say, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Some of us face similar circumstances in some measure or other. We are ridiculed for following Jesus. People who we thought were Christians or co-workers in the gospel can abandon us. Some of us suffer. In some parts of the world, Christians go to jail, like Paul did. Some can even be killed for following Jesus, just like Paul. And yet, we need to be encouraged to press on, to continue following Jesus, to continue in our ministry of bringing God's word to people. And so my aim over the next several weeks is that we would learn from 2 Timothy. We would be encouraged by what God is teaching us in it. Today, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses of 2 Timothy. In this first section of the book, we're going to see honour and shame and we're going to see Paul's twist on honour and shame. We're also going to see those three modes of proof that we talked about. Ethos, credibility of the speaker. Pathos, which is emotional appeal, which is very strong in this first few several verses. And logos, reasons and proof. We're also going to see something called imitation. And we're also going to be introduced to the main theme of this book, which recurs over and over again, which we see firstly in verses 11 and 12. Follow along with me, please, if you've got your Bible there. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know who I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This passage today should encourage all of us to persevere and continue in what God has called us to do. So let's have a look at these verses. This letter which Paul wrote to Timothy is a very personal letter. As we go through it, we will see that Paul has been going through a very hard time. He is in prison because he is following Jesus. Not only is Paul suffering physically, but he's also been shamed in the eyes of the people of this world. To be in prison, to be on trial, was a shameful thing. And in the ancient Greco-Roman world, nothing was more important than your honour. 
And nothing was worse than being dishonoured or shamed. And it seems that Timothy is wavering in following Paul. It seems he might be getting cold feet. I mean, I had cold feet this morning quite physically. Probably we all did with it being two degrees or something. But he had cold feet in the metaphorical sense. It seemed in some way he was fearful on continuing on his calling. Maybe he's even ashamed of Paul. Maybe even he's ashamed of Jesus. But Timothy is a long way away from Paul. They're separated at this point in time. And that's why Paul has to write this letter to him. Paul needs to urge Timothy on to keep going. To continue to follow Jesus. To continue to serve Jesus. No matter how tough it gets. And even in this greeting here, Paul is doing this. In verse 2, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son. That's the first two verses. Remember that one mode of proof in rhetoric is ethos. That is the credibility of the speaker or the writer who in this case is Paul. Here in this introduction, Paul reminds Timothy of his ethos, his credibility. Paul reminds Timothy that he, Paul, is not just anybody, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just anybody. This is Jesus, the Messiah, because Christ means Messiah, God's chosen anointed one, who God chose so this is Paul who God chose to go and tell others about the promise of life through faith in Jesus the Messiah. That means that Paul is someone who has been sent on a mission. And Paul mentions this mission again in verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This all means that Timothy needs to listen to Paul because Paul has been sent by God. The next thing we find is that Paul establishes this rapport with Timothy. He reminds him of their close relationship by calling him my dear son. Now in the Greek that's actually a bit stronger and that CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, brings that across quite nicely where it says to Timothy, my dearly loved son. And this is where we start to see a very strong appeal to pathos, to emotions. And this pathos, this emotional appeal continues throughout today's passage. Paul continues in the next few verses to use emotive language to remind Timothy of their very close relationship of master-apprentice or mentor and mentee, discipler and discipled, disciple. In verse 3, he thanks God, presumably for Timothy, and then he tells Timothy how he constantly prays for him. He actually says it twice. Listen, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day... I constantly remember you in my prayers. Notice that. He repeats it. Night and day. And then he says constantly to make sure that Timothy really gets it. I'm always praying for you. And then in verse 4, Paul shows Timothy how much he misses him 
and longs to see him again. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Look at that language here. Sometimes we just read it so fast and miss that close relationship. I long to see you. Paul doesn't just want to see Timothy. He longs to see him. And as he thinks about Timothy, he remembers Timothy's tears. Recalling your tears. No doubt these are the tears that Timothy shed when Paul and Timothy last parted and said goodbye. We can see this very close relationship between his master and his disciple. This is not some cold, impersonal relationship, but it is a deeply warm relationship where people cry when they leave each other, when people sorely miss each other when they're apart. It shows us a beautiful picture of a disciple and his disciple and how Paul poured his life into his disciple Timothy. This also sets the letter up for what will come later, and that is imitation and example. Imitation is exactly what it sounds like. It's when a master or a mentor urges his apprentice, his disciple, to imitate him. And we see this in verse 13, when Paul says, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. This is just one of the times that Paul urges Timothy to follow, uh, to follow Paul, to imitate Paul. Here it is to urge Timothy to follow Paul in healthy teaching. But later will we see that Paul urges Timothy to follow him in sacrificing and suffering for the sake of the gospel, the good news. But Paul doesn't urge Timothy to follow only his example, but he gives Timothy some other examples to follow. His mother and his grandmother. In verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded, now lives in you too. Up until now, Paul has been building ethos, that's credibility, and pathos, emotional appeal with Timothy. He's reminded Timothy of their close relationship, how much he misses Timothy. He's reminded Timothy of the faith of his mother and his grandmother and saying that Timothy has the same faith. Paul has got Timothy's ear. He has won his sympathetic attention, which that means now that Paul can get straight to his point which is that even though Paul says he is convinced of Timothy's faith, that Timothy could, he should, he ought to be doing much more than he is. In verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then in the next verse, Paul comes directly to Timothy's problem. In verse 7, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Paul doesn't tell Timothy directly that he's timid or a coward, but he certainly implies it by telling him not to be. 
But in what way is Timothy in danger of being timid or a coward? Well, we see in verse 8 another implication. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul doesn't say it directly, but it's certainly implied Timothy's problem is that it seems as though he might be ashamed to tell other people about Jesus. And what's more, he's also in danger of being ashamed of Paul. Why is he ashamed of Paul? Because Paul is in prison. And that was a shameful place in that culture to be. I think it's fairly shameful in our culture too. It really seems as though Timothy is wavering. He's been Paul's solid, faithful disciple, but things are tough. There's persecution. It is tough following Jesus and tough following Paul as Paul follows Jesus. Paul is in jail and Timothy doesn't want to go there too. Or at the very least, he possibly doesn't want to be associated with someone who is in jail. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of other people, it is shameful to follow Paul. It is shameful to follow Jesus. And in both verses 7 and 8, Paul offers the counterpoint. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And this really is the main point of this letter. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul is urging Timothy to not be timid, not be a coward, to fan into flame that gift of God, not let it go out, and to be brave and strong, to suffer, to suffer shame in the world's eyes, in people's eyes, for the sake of the gospel, the good news. But why would Timothy do that? You know, the comforts of this world are very present and real, aren't they? Who likes the comforts of this world? Let's be honest. Who likes to be honoured rather than shamed? Some of you don't care. Some of you do. The honour that Timothy seeks in the eyes of other people are very real, as it is for us, especially in an honour-shame culture. Why would Timothy willingly suffer for the sake of some pie-in-the-sky gospel? Well, Paul reminds, us, reminds him and us of what is at stake in the next two verses by giving a short summary of what the good news is. In verses 9 and 10, He, that's Jesus, has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and who has brought us life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
That is a good reminder for Timothy. And not just for Timothy. It's a good reminder for us too. This is why we suffer. This is why we're shamed by our culture and society. I mean, today, it is not trendy at all to follow Jesus, is it? Because, you see, there is something much bigger going on. If you have repented of your sins, if you've turned away from living your own way and turned to Jesus, then God has saved us, has rescued us, not because of any good deeds that we've done, because they're not enough. But God has shown us his favour, his grace, and given us salvation as a free gift. And this is not some afterthought. God's planned this before the beginning of time, before the world was even made. But it's only now, it's only now with the appearance, the, the coming of Jesus the Messiah, God's chosen one as a human, born on earth, who then died on the cross for our sins, who died on the cross for the wrong things that we have done and who then rose from the dead to destroy death, it's only now that that's happened that this plan has been revealed and been made clear for everybody to see. But what was this plan, this wonderful rescue? This plan, this rescue is to destroy death and to show us life and immortality. That is, though we may physically die, all our creature comforts of this world will one day go away when we die. Although we may physically die, we will be raised. Death has been destroyed and we will live forever with Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Can there be anything better than that? Can there be? There's nothing better than that. Surely Paul is reminding Timothy and reminding us as we go through difficulties, it is worth going through those difficulties when we see the big picture of what Jesus has done for us. And not just done for us, but he's done it for others as well. But for others to know about this, for others to hear the message of the good news Someone has to tell them. And that is why Paul is suffering. That is why he is going through such a hard time. As he says in verse 11 and 12, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet... This is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Timothy might be in danger of being ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of the good news, ashamed of the gospel, but Paul is not. Why? Because Paul knows Jesus. Paul knows the one he's believed. He knows the one he trusts. And he has an unshakable confidence that Jesus can give him the strength to keep going right up until the last day when Jesus returns or he dies, whichever comes sooner. Timothy might see Paul as a prisoner in dishonour. 
Timothy might see him holding on to a shameful gospel, but Paul does not see it that way. Paul sees the opposite. If anything, Paul is proud of his prison chains. By using both logical arguments, which is that logos we were talking about, as well as emotional appeal, pathos, Paul is urging Timothy to reconsider what is true shame and what is true honour. True and lasting honour is to attain the honour and approval, not of people, but of God. Even if that means taking on the shame of this world in order to do so. Paul has been talking about himself in these last few verses. He's been giving Timothy his own life and conduct as an example to follow. And now he turns back to Timothy and what Timothy should do. In verses 13 and 14, What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So as we draw today's sermon to a close, what do we see and what do we learn from our passage today? Firstly, for all that technical stuff, we learn three modes of rhetorical proof that will help us to understand what's going on in this book. Ethos, the credibility of the speaker, Paul reminds Timothy that it was God who called him. Paul's just not speaking off his own bat, but he is speaking as a messenger of God. It is God who sent Paul and gave him and Timothy the message of the good news to preach and who also gives us the message of the good news to preach. We also saw logos, the logical argument. We see some of that here, especially in verses 9 and 10, when Paul gives a brief summary of the good news and what Jesus has done for us. We also saw pathos or emotional appeal and it's particularly strong in this passage we looked at today. We've seen Paul remind Timothy of their long and close friendship and the use of quite emotional and strong language such as in verse 4, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. In verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me. In Greek rhetoric, the greatest use of pathos or emotional appeal was at the beginning and the end of the speech or the letter. And we see this in 2 Timothy. Our passage today, right at the beginning of the letter, has been full of emotional and appeal. And while that emotions is still there through, during the rest of the letter, it doesn't come through as strong until we come towards the end of the letter. And when we get to the end of the letter, we will see the emotional appeal, the pathos, ramp back up again very strongly. Today we've also seen very clearly the issue of honour and shame. Timothy seems to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Paul, or at least in danger of that shame. Paul has to remind him that honour in the eyes of God is worth far more than honour 
in the eyes of people and that it is worth suffering shame in the eyes of people in order to have honour in God's eyes. So how does that apply to us in our lives today? Well, I think anything that Paul says to Timothy applies to us too. On a personal level, this letter, I find, is extremely encouraging. Who amongst us hasn't felt like Timothy at some stage? Who of us hasn't felt timid and ashamed of sharing about Jesus? The task is so hard. It is so difficult following Jesus that sometimes it is tempting to give up. Different ones of us are in different circumstances, but some of us are shamed by our family for following Jesus. Some of us are shamed by our friends, some in our workplace, some in our community for following Jesus and serving him. But this is an encouragement for us to persevere, to keep going. It's an encouragement for us to suffer difficulties and shame for the higher goal of honour from God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this wonderful letter that you inspired Paul to write to Timothy and which now forms part of your word. We pray that we can learn from it. Those things that Paul teaches Timothy, he's teaching us too. You're teaching us. Help us, Lord, to see the bigger picture. Help us, Lord, to never be ashamed or afraid of following you or declaring your praise. But help us to always see you, the things that you have called us to. And we would be more concerned with seeking your honour than the honour of this world. We ask for this in your name. Amen.